time on Chew Diligence, we have Michael Smith from Farina, an Italian oyster bar about to open in the crossroads. I want to get more, um, maybe visceral. I don't know. I want to get more love in the plate. Oh, (laughs) I love that. I tell my cooks all the time, you need to know that you can make food someone will buy. But that's not the only reason. I mean, I, I make food that I want to eat. And if I think it's delicious and I want to eat it, I'm hoping my, I've always hoped that my customers would eat it too. And I teach kids every day. I, don't, I tell my yeah. customers, we don't have it. We're not a restaurant. We're a cooking school. Welcome to Chew Diligence, a podcast about the Kansas City food scene. I'm Jill Silva. My co-host, Lindsay Shively, is on maternity leave, spending some time with her beautiful little girl. And we wish her a lot of snuggle time. Um, to keep me on track, I've got producer Haley Godburn in the pod studio. Thanks, Haley. Hey. Hey. Can't do this alone, you know. Um, today, my guest is James Beard Award-winning chef Michael Smith. Um, you've probably been following Michael Smith's career back in the 90s when he moved here from Chicago. He has been at the American Restaurant, 40 Sardines, and a decade ago, he became a crossroads pioneer with side-by-side restaurants at 19th and Main. That would be the upscale Michael Smith and the Mediterranean-inspired Extra Virgin. And at the end of January, early February, he will be transitioning Michael Smith to an event space, and he will open a new Italian restaurant and oyster bar called Farina. Welcome to the show, Michael Smith. Thank you for having me. Yeah. We've... uh, we go way back, don't we? Way, way back. Way, way back. There's some James Beard history for you, too. Uh, <laughs> yes, there is. But we're talking about your history today, know, which is going to be really fun. This town has been good for, for James Beard. It has been very good. And you started that role. So thank you very much for that. <laughs> uh, so we usually start off, Lindsay and I, talking about where we've been to eat lately. And um, so where have you been? Anywhere fun? That's not your restaurant. We'll get to your restaurant. Uh, we ate it uh, a couple of times, and then we took a little takeout last night, but um, uh, Pad Thai on 143rd. I have not been out there. I don't know how is new, it, new? It is. It's relatively new, but I don't know how new. But it's good food. Nice and decent, good food, small, little, uh, clean, pretty little restaurant. What'd you have? Um, they have some little pork nuggets that are cool. They're always, the Asian people, you know, whenever they're, they do pork nuggets in any way, they're always good. And... Uh, um, their pad thai is pretty good, and uh, some some wonton wrapped shrimp. There's I had a I had the classic um, green papaya salad, Thai hot, and it was Thai hot. It oh my gosh! Hot. Wait a second, you can do Thai hot? Yes, I did Thai hot a couple times in Thailand this last year, and and it wasn't it did not kill me. I am so impressed because I cannot. Uh, every time I go to a Thai restaurant, I think I can do like medium. Yeah. I'm using no. medium. I don't do Thai. No. Thai hot will, will kill. It just kills your taste buds. But I'll do it occasionally. Yeah. And so. Just to test. Just to see. <laughs> just to test. And like, yeah. do you start, I yes. don't know, do you start yes, sweating profusely? Yes, and I don't sweat. So, I mean, I'm not, a, but it's very hot. And oh. it's cough and you sneeze and yeah, it's not, I mean, whatever. But I Blow always test nose, myself. that whole thing. Yeah. Okay. So I asked a friend about this, and I think there's, this was her theory, it's become my theory, that she was in Thailand for quite a while, and she said um, they don't really change that, uh, no. the, the spices, you know, <laughs> no. that they're grinding, and uh, what, the, what do you call that? I'm losing the, the name little, of that right the, now. The trolley thing? The, the little... Uh, mortar and pestle. Yeah, mortar and pestle, yeah. Um, and, and she said, you know, so what is medium becomes hot and yeah. hot and hotter throughout the night. Yeah. Do you it's, think that's... It can be. I mean, I don't think yeah. they, they might wipe it out or something, but yeah, it may build up inside. It, it's really seasoning. But you know, it's it's funny that we stayed in some people's homes while we were there too, and you know, they'll the cooking is innate. There's no transferring of a recipe written. Right. They just we saw these kids, eight years old, five years old. They go make the make the blah 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 sauce. <laughs> they didn't say it in English. They were saying it whatever. And the kids just squatting on the floor with one of those big freaking things. Bam 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 bam. And they just make it. <laughs> I mean, they're six years old, and yeah. so they're making the sauce, and so then they, they have somebody taste it. Mm-hmm. But it was like, wow, okay. And and so if you grew up with hot, you're gonna right, you're gonna be fine with hot. Right, and all the kids were it didn't matter. So what about noodles? I'm curious. Did you get any uh, pad thai, or any, since that's the name of the place, or any other noodle dishes? Uh, 
She uh, Pad CU. We had Pad CU. Uh, we had one of the soups. It was good. I haven't tried any of the curry yet. I always want curry. Nancy doesn't love curry, so I, I don't always get curry, but anyway. The wife overrules, huh? Well, I mean, we can eat our own food, but, <laughs> but I just but, didn't get curry for whatever reason, and, and, and I like curries a lot. Yeah, but why when you can share, you know? Right. So, well, so uh, you have some really exciting news. That's one of the reasons you're here, and that is that Farina, an Italian oyster bar, I kind of like that <laughs> description. I hope is is that accurate? Is that well? You know, uh, not that I, it, I mean, it was, we certainly didn't invent that, but um, we wanted something action oriented in the restaurant that in the dining room that wasn't just a box with seats in it. So we decided to put an oyster bar in. We could have put a, a, a pizza oven or an open kitchen, or we, you know, there's lots of reasons, but. Um, we were in Piedmont a few years ago, and we went to the first Italy in Turin, and I had some, you know, they have all the stations that you can eat, and I just happened, my my friend that we were, we were with, we had, the girls went to go eat pasta and pizza, and we sat at the oyster bar and had white wine and oysters, and it, it just made sense. It was great, and I just remember that, and I thought, that's nice. Yeah. So describe what the, the farina is going to be all about. What's the concept here besides pasta? I think there's a lot of great pasta going on, oysters. So kind of walk us through a visual of what people might see when they come in. Um, Well, I think the menu is going to reflect a lot of what we already have been doing. We changed our menu at at MS for, uh, you know, uh, to the Italian concept a couple of years ago. So we've been kind of heading that direction anyway. But people have been wondering if we're going to not have creative food anymore and it's not that I don't want to have creative food. Of course, we do a little bit of creative food. I'm not the most creative guy in town. but um, And our food sometimes look very beautiful. But I just wanted to cook really delicious food. So I'm thinking about all the foods that that are Italian-inspired. And there, and there are some great American-Italian dishes over the years that have been sort of, you know, compromised that are, that are very good. And we may put some of those on. I mean, you know, whatever, eggplant, parmesan, those things aren't necessarily maybe indigenous to the Italian cooking. They're part of it, but we did it here. And then we kind of probably messed them up a little bit for a while <laughs> or just overindulged on the cheese or, you know, whatever. So, yeah. Um, but we're going to have, um, we're going to treat the oyster bar. Uh, I just hate to use the word, but for lack of a better term, you know, like a sushi bar in a way uh, with raw loins of tuna or hamachi or shima aji maybe or live sea urchins, persebis from Spain, anything raw and or cooked, crab legs or shrimp cocktail. Um, but I want it to be more than just oysters. We're going to have four or five oysters, I think, kinds um, of raw clams. Uh, but really we want to treat it as a – we're going to feature a lot of caviar That's that can be affordable these days because there's so many farms doing really, really good work. Yeah. And they're farming very big sturgeon. So they're getting Ocetra. And it's awesome. I've been getting it for five or six years now. I get it by the kilo, and it's incredible. And it's affordable. It's not It's not cheap, but it's not as expensive as you would think it would be. Well, so this will be at the front. So the Oyster Bar, when yes. you walk in. It'll look at Main Street. It'll look at Main Street. So that's very cool just to start with. And then you've got I'm these... sorry, 19th. It'll look at 19th Street, right? Right. It'll You're face right. 19th. Baltimore, yeah. right? But it'll face. 19th Street. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. And so you have, you showed me when I came in recently, these, what do you call them? Pedestals, candlesticks? Candelabras. Candelabras. Mm-hmm. They're from, they're squid and octopus. They're just fun, they're just funny and funky looking. But so we're going to do a, a, a caviar beggar's purse, um, so just a nice thin crepe and uh, serve it on a candelabra. And it'll be a $38 dish, but it'll have an ounce of caviar in it uh-huh. with some creme fraiche. And you just sit it right on this little pedestal. And really, I didn't make that up, but the, the back in the 80s, um, quilted giraffe used to do that. Uh, berry wine. He was, you know, they weren't, the food was really good, but it was a place to be seen and a place, a hip place. And, uh, so I've, I've been wanting to revive something like that for a for a long time. And so this is kind of an opportunity to do that. That's kind of fun. So we can be seen with one of those. Yeah. The they're window they're six my... or eight inches tall, you know, and they're kind of <laughs> slender in the shape of, an, of a, like a squid or an octopus. And so we'll just serve it. And so it'll be an interesting, somebody sees somebody around the room or down the oyster bar eating that, like, what is, what is that? What, what is that guy eating or whatever? I don't know. You know, you're just trying, we're just trying to create some visuals, I guess. 
Absolutely. I mean, that is part of dining, right? Uh, do you think about Instagram when you're putting a restaurant together? You know, what uh, kinds I've, of things? I've always thought that since I, since I, you know, I hate to invoke his name necessarily with all the controversy, but, you know, Mario Batali, when he was opening his restaurants, he always had food. There was always, a, you know, a bowl of peppers, bowl of tomatoes. There was, uh, there, it was what, it, it, you know, when you walked in his place, it was a visual. David Boulay, back in the day when he had his um, apples in the foyer of his Boulay restaurant in, 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 in Greenwich, he had 40 cases of apples just stacked in, in the foyer. That's all the decor was. And you walk through and the smell was unbelievable. And he always said, people could take an apple if you want. Nobody did. But, <laughs> but you could and some people did. But, um, and it was just it was just because you're, you're trying to sell food. Yeah. So you're so, trying to put some ambiance. Yeah. That includes the Yeah. The so food. there'll be a few things like that. But, you know, people see okay. food, they think food when they see you know, a long time ago, a, a woman who, in town who sells wine for a living, she's since moved on. But um, she said, if you want to sell wine at your bar, then then show them wine. If you want to sell tequila, then show them tequila. Mm-hmm. Whatever you want to sell, show it to them. Don't put it behind closed, yeah. closed doors, huh? Yeah. That's why we do the open kitchens these days. I mean, that everyone wants to see everything. Now, you're not going to have an open kitchen this I chose not to. We, we could have. But I just, um, it felt... Uh, um, sometimes uh, we are, you know, we're on stage. Basically, we're on stage every night. Mm-hmm. When we open the restaurant, we're on stage. And I just felt like it's a, another restaurant that I would have to be visible in every moment or it's not good enough. Mm-hmm. There's the pressure of that. And I, it's not that I don't want – I'm always in my restaurant. But I just thought I don't want to have to be visible every moment. They don't need to know that I'm back there every single second to know that the food can be good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's a weird thing to say, but um, well, it's, it's kind of the psychology of it. I just felt a lot of pressure yeah. for that. And EV's enough. There's one. One's enough. Sometimes you want an understudy, like a little backing bit. you up a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, sometimes I got to go home at nine o'clock and if the customer, uh, whatever, you know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah. So they walk in, they see the oyster bar. The kitchen is further back. Uh, walk us through how many seats do we have in the dining room? What does it look like? There's about 80 or 90 seats. It's really open. There's no, it's a, it's a big rectangle box. And so there's no walls and separate rooms. There's a small little kind of um, uh, room for 12 in the back corner that we found some extra space and put a wall up and kind of made a little uh, cubbyhole room. But basically it's an open space and um, divided by some couch, you know, like couch type um, banquette seating. Um, some banquettes against the back wall, some tables along windows. You know, we used all the window space we had. We have two full sides of windows in the restaurant, and every one of them are you're looking out, they're looking at you, and a lot of activity. That's what seems most striking to me, having dined at Michael Smith's, and then this is just on the other side, and yet it catches the light so much better. Oh, it's a lights. much lighter space. <laughs> oh, yeah, the light's so much different over there. It's It's heavy duty. Yeah. <laughs> Until four thirty, five o'clock, man, it's coming, it's blazing through those windows. And um, your neighbor is Haw Contemporary. Yes. So tell me a little bit about the art that's going to be throughout. Well, we, we, we kind of thought that um, we would put an event space there. And we were meeting with uh, our, um, our partner, Bill Lyons, one day. And uh, we were talking about putting a, a small room in there and a little kitchen and this and that. And Nancy said, what are, why are, you, ta- what are you talking about? We have one. We have, we're sitting in one right now. We're sitting in an event space. Why would we put 300 grand in the other? So Bill and I looked at each other. Oh, yeah, right. So Michael Smith became an event space. So then we said, what are we going to do with this space? And it could have, we were thinking about doing an Italian food store. We were, it could double as an event space at one point, you know. And then all of a sudden, uh, Bill Lyons says, hey, maybe we get an art gallery. Mm-hmm. He said, I have some ideas. I'll call some people. And he called Bill Haw. And that was the first guy he called, and he said yes in a second. He nice. said he said maybe six or seven shows already. He got in in March, mm-hmm. so he's already been uh, uh, last March. And will you have some of the artwork? Oh yeah, the, uh, in the restaurant, artwork, not right now. In the, but, in the um, restaurant, no. But uh, you know, we what, what we immediately thought was awesome was that you know it's first Fridays is it's, it's an art district, and we don't really have that many galleries down there. there there's quite a few obviously but it's not like it's just teeming with street after street after street of art galleries and so um having one next to us we thought brought legitimacy to the building to our corner to us we brought you know something to him 
we just thought it was a good match, and it, ha- it has been so far. It is. Now, you were one of the pioneers of the Crossroads. Talk to me about what that was like 10 years ago versus what it is like today. Well, I think um, really Alex Pryor was in, was really the pioneer that, I mean, there was nothing down there, and he was the only one, him and John O'Brien of the Dolphin. <clears throat> but we got there in 07, and I, I, I mean, I knew we would be kind of busy because I had customers that were willing to find me, and I had a good following. So it wasn't that hard the first two or three years. But it was certainly closed up at night. There was never more than three cars parked at the light at the corner of 19th and Main at one time to get through. Uh, But, you know, sort of when the downturn hit, obviously we were building extra virgin and we took a hit on that. We only had to let one cook go. We, We made it. We didn't have to, you know, let a lot of people go. We kept a team together. But, you know, five or six years in, it's waning, and then they start construction for the streetcar, or they they tell you that they're going to build the Sprint Center, or they're going to build Kaufman. Sure. Oh, I know. Yeah, I know. I know. You you weren't totally sold that that was going to happen? No, I don't know anything about the city and what they're doing. These guys, they're bigger than me. But, but um, it was always like, dig the hole. Then dig a hole. Somebody dig a hole. Okay, if you're building that thing, dig a hole. Same with this hotel that's going up now. It's like forever, four or five years. Dig a hole. Somebody dig a hole. So then now they're building, you know. So then when it all started happening, and then during the middle of it, your construction's everywhere. It's up. It's insane. But, you know, we came out the other end. And so then well, something happened this last year. Business changed. It just turned around. I mean, it didn't really, it didn't turn around. It, it was always, it started getting good the last two or three years. But something, a threshold crossed this year in 2018 and people were just down there more like all the time more Saturdays you had come down at you know two o'clock to park to go to the restaurant on Saturday we don't do lunch on Saturday so coming a little bit later and there's no parking it's like I can't get a parking spot so I'm thinking okay whoa something what's going on and so it started happening all the time so it's like okay something's going on down here so you think that is all the development that's been going on in terms of lofts and apartments oh, yeah, and it, hotels and yeah. restaurants? Are People are going, coming down from the, even from maybe, you know, Midtown and the suburbs just to come down on Saturday and Sunday to look around and see what's happening. And they come down during the week. And yeah, people are riding the streetcar. It doesn't really go anywhere yet. I mean, that's not a criticism of it. But, you know, when they've had way more ridership than they, I guess they thought, right? So... Um, as soon as they connect that thing to the plaza, I mean, it's just, it's just all positive. And the reason we're devel- all the development is happening is because of the streetcar. They want to get on, get on board now. So you are one of the only ones there now. A lot of people are on, if we think just about your corner of the world, you have uh, a fair across the street, uh, Corvino Supper Club, uh, the Rieger. Rieger's on the other end. On the other end. Uh, you, you've got, uh, not too far away, Lydia's. So another Italian, Lazia opened up on oh, yeah. the crossroads. Town topic. Uh, town topic, of course. You got a lot going on. Up, um, down, right? You know, up, down's nuts, but they're busy. And they're, I mean, our customer sometimes yeah. at EV is that customer and that customer's crazy, you know, and parties all the time. But that's a good, it's a good crowd to have on the corner. We're a little nervous to see what, because their balcony gets a little packed. Sometimes you think, well, we're going to be looking right at them. <laughs> but that's good. You know, that's good for us as, as we're in the, you know. It's sometimes these people, they, the customers, they're, they're, even the people that live down there, they want it to be full and busy. And then when it is, it's a little more complicated because there's garbage and noise. And, and so you, it, it's, they go hand in hand. It's downtown living. So it's a little bit, you know, precarious. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, do you know all your neighbors? Do you feel close to them or do you feel like um, you're too busy to, you know, I don't, to I mean, know? Yeah. Them? Kim Weinberger and, and Blue Gallery people, uh, Kelly Kuhn and David, and the people at Arts KC. We we know most of them, but we, I mean we don't we don't hang out. Nobody's got time. Who's got time, man? We're all busy. <laughs> I mean, it's I'm a- busy. You're busy. Everyone's busy, right? So, yeah. And we're all busy. Uh, we try. We, we 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 don't not wave to each other on the street. We all get along. Corvino. We go over there and have a burger occasionally, and we just saw Howard in the restaurant Saturday night, and so yeah, we all we're fine. It's like a clubhouse, I think. Stop by when you yeah. can, huh? <laughs> I mean, everyone's got families, you know. I mean, I'm on the back end of my family, so that's good. And you know, but a fair, they're raising kids, and you know, everybody's doing whatever. So yeah. So tell me a little bit about uh, the menu. I've actually seen it. You gave me a little bit of a preview. I'm sure it continues to change, but um, the four kings. 
Well, I was how, re- does, how does that work? And, and tell people about that, because I think that's one of the hallmarks of what you're going to be doing, right? Well, so... Or kingpins, or yeah, what, what's the, the word? Four, the four kings of Rome. <laughs> the, the four kings, there we go. Yeah. So it's the kingpin of your yeah. menu. <laughs> the kingpin. The linchpin. <laughs> there the you go. So, um, um, well, uh, uh, because we say modern Italian cooking, I mean, I'm no, I've been trying to tell the Mirabile brothers and everybody else in town, I'm not, I didn't invent Italian cooking, and I'm not, you know, an expert. But I love it. And I respect it, and I want to do a good job with it. And so um, what is modern Italian cooking? I think modern Italian cooking here in this town is that is that you can take dishes, and they're just, just lighter. Maybe they're fresher, but maybe you don't change them at all. You just They're just put on the plate a little bit differently. But I also think modern Italian might scare a few people in a way because they're thinking, mm, what does that mean? We've had a few people come in the restaurant at MS over the last – couple of years when we changed and they said, this isn't Italian. Where's your, where's the lasagna? Where's the meatballs? You know, and that kind of thing. So I thought about this menu thinking, I want people to come in and sit down and say, okay, this is Italian. And so I needed them to recognize some things. And we do a lot of seasonal. And in my previous food life, I would, I would not have very many tomato things on the menu in the winter. I just wouldn't. Even though I know you can get great European Italian canned tomatoes. So Anyway, I decided – I was reading a book, this new book that came out. It's this little book called Vino Pane and Pasta, I think, something like that. And they, the guy was describing the history of cooking, uh, you know, Italian cooking and some things, he, whatever. And he started talking about the four kings of Rome. And I was like, what's that? And then there's – it's book it's – the, it's the Amatrishana. It's um, the Carbonara, Cacio e Pepe. And really their fourth one is uh, Griglia, Griglia, which is – Really, just pancetta, the oil, and pancetta and peppercorn, and it's 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 good, but it's greasy. It's oilier probably than than most Americans want to eat on a regular basis. So I substitute bolognese. I said, "Well, bolognese, I made my own king." There you go. You can do that anyway. I figured those are the four pastas that I want on the menu all the time. Mm-hmm. They'll always be there, okay. and then and then there'll be six pastas that'll be more creative, and so we put those atypica. I like that. I like that word even. I saw that. I mean, I stole, I stole a couple things from this. So, you know, Tony Montuano has a, a, a cooking tree, kind of like Andy Reid has a coaching tree, you know. And he's got these two girls that used to work for him. And one of them had from Lilia in, in Missy Robbins in, in New York. She came and did a dinner with Tony in, at 40 Sardines years ago. And then his other, uh, um, Sarah Gutenberg, has a place in Chicago called Monteverde. And I stole that from her. The... Um, Atypica. And then on the menu, I think on the on the specials, on the Thursday special, we're having the uh, Monteverde down there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I stole that from her. Okay, I, so I ate that twice, and I told her I was going to steal it, and she said, that's fine. You can. So that tell us what that is, because that's uh, quite a dish. So I've never done a, a menu where I've had a, a every Tuesday, get this dish. Every Wednesday, get this dish. Every Thursday, get that. Anyway, mm-hmm. so we're doing that. And uh, the Thursday dish is, uh, for now, and they all all change, but for now... So in her place, she does this uh, big kind of um, uh, casserole dish she serves, and it's a, a, a roasted pork shank that's been braised in some kind of tomato sauce. It's two or three links of Italian sausage. It's four or five meatballs, and it's a – she uses different pasta occasionally, but rigatoni, a maitre shot, or, you know, spicy red sauce, whatever it is, this braising sauce. So it's just this bowl of meat. <laughs> with pasta. She used to tuck a little salad in there. Maybe she still does. I'm thinking, ditch the salad. <laughs> you know. Who needs that? Right. <laughs> anyway, I, I we, we, Nancy and I ate the, at Monteverdi before we went to uh, Tokyo, Tokyo this last March on our Asian trip. And uh, we had eaten everything on the menu practically. And then I saw that. And I'm like, what the hell is that? And the server told me what it was. I'm like, we need one. Nancy's like, we, we, but we're not hungry. <laughs> I said, I, I need to see this thing. I'm very sorry. I'm going to waste food. But I like the- So I, I told her I'm going to steal it. And she said, that's fine. Very cool. It sounds um, a lot like the way my grandma cooked. Right. And one of the other ones I'm thinking, I think is spaghetti Sunday sauce maybe on mm-hmm, there. Mm-hmm. can't remember. I've changed it a couple times. We'll do, we'll do fish on Wednesday. But spaghetti Sunday sauce. So then they mix everything on in. On Tuesday. Is it? Oh, Tuesday. Yeah. Sorry. We're closed, yeah. on, closed, on, closed on Monday. <laughs> um, so, but, you know, I, I, I've done it a couple times in the restaurant at one of our Thursday pasta dinners or Tuesdays and, you know, put the spaghetti down with, this, with the braising sauce, but leave, put the meatballs 
it changes a lot, but it can be meatballs, a hunk of pork, but the bone, you know, the rib bone, leave the bone there. So I'm going to serve it like that, a big bowl of pasta, the meatballs, the bone, some sausage, whatever. I just think that there's, I want to get more um, maybe visceral. I don't know. I want to get more love in the plate. Oh, <laughs> I love that. So let's talk about love and um, grandma food. Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll do modern about, kind of plating yeah. with some of our appetizers and stuff. But I think sometimes, I don't know, there's nothing wrong with a plate of grandma food. And and the appeal of Italian. We've talked about this I before. Know. And I mean, of all the foods you could cook and all the foods you have cooked, you keep coming back to Italian. Why is that? I mean, if I could, you know, I guess if there was another food that I would love cooking <laughs> But you'd have to learn from a very young cook, say, Thai food or something like that, right? Because there's just so many incredible elements of it. But, um, but yeah, I do. And I, and, and I love Mexican cooking, South American, um, you know, any Nicaragua, Honduras, whatever. I love all that. I've always loved that. But the, for what I do as a professional and also love it personally, Italian food for sure, yeah. And I don't know why because I love pasta. Who doesn't love – there's just something about – I've always described the – when you're chewing al dente pasta or swallowing spaghetti, it's different than rigatoni. I can have pasta, rigatoni, all the short pastas for a while. Sometimes you got to have spaghetti or linguine because it's just different going down your throat. It just is. It is. Yeah. yeah. I agree with that. We were a big rigatoni family growing up. Same but... with Nancy's family. and Me too. But, um, yeah. but And I love eating the short pastas, but they're different. When you're slurping down noodles, same with Asian noodles, you know, Chinese noodles. It's just it's when you're slurping noodles, long noodles, it's just different. And I don't know why. And so some of the noodles at your restaurant are going to be hand, handmade, right? Yeah, we and say handmade. Maybe that's a misnomer because we, it's an extruding machine, but we, 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 we crank them out every day. Housemade. So yeah. not necessarily dry. We're talking about a lot of fresh pasta. Yeah, we don't dry them because we've tried to dry them, but um, they don't, you have to have a drying machine to really get the right hard dry otherwise they dry just enough to crack and break and that doesn't make any sense but really the the beauty of an extruder is that is that it gives you that um the toothsomeness so fresh pasta has been awesome fresh pasta when we've been rolling it through a roller you you can you can adjust the thickness so that you could get a toothsome pasta um the french forever starting with the robichon guys and 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 uh, Alan Ducasse, they started making really thin pastas to make their food very delicate. Little raviolis, you can practically see everything through. And that's great, but, they, but that, doesn't, that doesn't give you the toothsomeness that an Italian pasta does. And so the extruder does. Is it, it gives you everything that that pasta needs but is fresh. So it cooks in like two and a half minutes. If, we, if I were to do it fresh out of the machine and cook it, it would cook in less than one minute. Wow. But if but it sits it sits we we put it in these little bins and hold it so we'll make thirty orders and hold it and so every day that it holds which isn't more than two but three maybe max over the weekend but uh, it's an extra minute to cook so it's roughly two and a half minutes if it's tomorrow then it's three and a half minutes not exact we don't time it but it's roughly that but it tastes it has that chewiness and that toothsome like a dry pasta yeah sounds uh, delicious and I was talking to Jasper Marable who's a friend of yours yes. Um, and he was blown away. He told me when he saw you making, and I don't even remember. I should have. Oh, the looked. Uh, what, the the, Cecil, uh, the Sardinian um, Sar- Sardinian. Yeah, I'll think uh, of him here in a second. Yeah. So he said, you know, Michael's really done the work here. He's really getting. He's going really deep into some of this. And he said, very <laughs> few people. It looks like kind of a wreath. Yeah, it's a rope. Yeah. Um, he said, very few people will do this and take the time. And so he introduced you to a whole bunch of Italian uh, chefs and restaurateurs, he told me. He, um, he, uh, we talk or I'll text him, hey, if I'm going to do whatever, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. What do you? Because he knows everybody. He, he, yeah. He introduced <laughs> He's kind of sure. out there, isn't he? Yeah, he's everywhere. <laughs> anyway, um, um, yeah, these Sardinian, they're like ropes. So you have to put uh, two of them together. And you have to wrap them around your – I mean you put you put a long one together. Sorry, you, you roll out a long one by hand. You roll it around three fingers twice. And then you have to close it and then spin it the same way so that it rolls into a rope, like a braided rope. 
and then you, it's like a circle. For listeners, uh, Michael's doing all of this with his hands. I Sorry. wish you could see that. Yeah. No, you're you're like making them right now. Yeah. Uh, and so then <laughs> you know, pasta. It 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 it, uh, <laughs> it represents the for them it represents the um, uh, the there's a couple of things and one right offhand that I can think of is the the you know when you roll up to a building in the old days with the horses or the animals and you would tie them up to the ring that's hanging on the building or the post outside almost like in the old days horses the horse post well they have them you know when you walk by these old buildings in Europe you see these old rusted rings attached to the building that's usually for the animals used to be for the animals that's pretty cool. So there's a lot of uh, different shapes that have stories like that, I understand. Yeah. There's, there's one that's it's called uh, Collergione from, from Sardinia, and I, I, I can't for the life of me make it. It's a, it's a stuffed ravioli. They use a, a potato and cheese, and it's very um, – it's pretty full and fat, and it's a teardrop shape, but they braid the top. It's very easy. They just fold it. They don't really braid it. They just fold it back and forth one side to the other. And it looks like a little um, uh, kernel of wheat on top, and I cannot make it. Ooh, I can tell that's frustrating you. You can go on YouTube, man, and it looks, you're like, no problem, man, I can do that. <laughs> and then you're doing it, and it's like, can't do it. Um, what, what do you think is hard about it? Is the dexterity? Is it the shape? Is it the... Uh, it's dexterity. Yeah? Yeah. So the um, do I have it on here? I just happen to have this sheet on me because we're going to because our custom. If I call a pasta Santarelli, nobody knows what that is. If I call a pasta a a pacari, nobody knows what that is. If I call it a a garganelli or a bigoli or a corzetti, nobody knows what it is. Yeah. So we're gonna we're gonna. We're gonna have a little card made about a, like a, like a little postcard made, uh-huh. and we're gonna have hand sketched pasta shapes with the name, so that the server can always have that. Neat. And they'll just show to the server because I want to. Uh-huh. Sometimes I have to call a revi. Like I want to. Like I can. I can call a. Um, the Kessenselli is this beautiful little square ravioli that you, you. It's a square shape, and you put the dough kind of at the bottom of the of one of the sides, and you but you roll it. From the corner in, and so it's just this rolled flap with this with these pointy ends, and it's a re- it's it's a cassonselli, but but we call it a ravioli because nobody will order that because they, they won't know they, they yeah. can't pronounce it and they don't know what it is. But if we can point to it and then show the picture of it, server can just go, yeah, it's one of those. So it's not, you know, we're not trying to be intimidating. We're not trying to show them up. We're not trying to pronounce something they can't. We're just showing them that's the shape, and they're like, oh, I'll have that. Oh, that's really good for visual people, too. The Japanese have been doing it with sushi forever. Yeah. The Asian restaurants do it. They show you a bowl of sushi. You're like, man, I don't have that. So we were talking for another interview that I did with you uh, for a magazine, and uh, you started talking about the food that you really wanted to eat. And you are French trained, Mm -hmm. um, but mm, French isn't the one that you crave. (laughs) So talk that what is it about Italian food that's going to make you happy until I don't know uh, until you eat enough tomatoes prosciutto parmesan cheese spaghetti I don't know salami I mean what the hell they're all you know I mean they have great salami (laughs) in France you know I've eaten some great salami (laughs) they but they serve jamboni beurre jamboni beurre is you know they have their own they have their own prosciutto that they make and you know but but it's essentially prosciutto so you know it's it's Italian. Um, I don't know why just crave the food and so when I lived in France I, I thought it was the most be- I'm thinking I'm having a, I'm gonna live in France someday because the country's and whatever it's all beautiful right but then you go to Italy and it's beautiful I mean, you can go to Romania if you're in the middle of the countryside you're gonna go oh, this is gorgeous I want to live here I mean you can live anywhere because it's all beautiful <laughs> so but Italian because of the food and the, I think pound for pound. As you travel through the entire country of Italy and the con- entire country of France, you'll get, you know, it wins by a nose, but you, you get better food in Italy. Uh, wow. Because there's sometimes, I'm not, I'm really trying not to denigrate the French, but they, they have had a higher level of food. They have had a higher echelon of food. There's a lot of rustic stuff too, and they have had this. 
my chef was a little bit like this. I'm French. If I tell them to eat it, they will like it because I'm French. Okay, them. <laughs> you. F you. You like it. I tell you you like it, you like it. And the Italians don't do that. They go, eh, come over and eat. Come on. Eh, Whatever. That's a little bit like that. Yeah. Not all the fr- I'm not trying to friend you French people. I'm just saying. So that's a little bit, th- that sort of grandma thing is a little bit more your personality anyway, isn't it? Well, I think as you get older as a chef, you, I mean, you know, certainly you can tell Daniel Belouz of the world and Thomas Keller, they're getting older. They're not doing, I mean, you know, but I'm not as talented. And so as I get older as a chef, I want to use less, ing- I don't care about showing anybody that I, I know 25 techniques. I don't need to put that on a plate. I don't care. You just don't care about a lot of stuff when you get older. And so um, the food gets simpler. It tastes better. You're committed to cooking correctly because as you get older, you're teaching people. So I teach people every day. So do I teach them the be- – you know, I'm not oh, a professor at Harvard. I'm a professor at, you know, in Kansas City. So it's a little bit different, not as intense, uh, not as uh, viewed by the outside public. So we're smaller. But I try to teach them what I know and what I know works for our community. I tell them all the time, if I were cooking in Chicago with you, I might – my philosophy could be different. But I know what Kansas City wants to eat. I know how they want to be treated. And if you want to be successful here, you need, you'll probably need to do some version of this within your own self. So let's talk a little bit about... Did I answer any of that question? I, I, think, I think we're getting there. Yeah, I think... Sorry. No, I think, uh, I think this goes back to how did you become a chef in the first place and the sort of progression that led you to Kansas City? Because um, you came from Chicago, but you also grew up in South Dakota... Texas, Oklahoma. All over. Your mother was in the uh, industry. So take me through how you became a chef and landed in Kansas City. Well, I, I, from the time I was probably 12, I was in a restaurant every day. What kind of restaurant? Uh, My mother uh, was part of this group called um, Zyder Z. It was exactly like Red Lobster. They had one here in Kansas City on Shawnee Mission Parkway. It had a, or Shawnee Mission, way out, yeah, way out that west. Anyway, um, had the windmill on it. They had them in Denver, Lubbock, Tulsa. Anyway, Wichita, and so she 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 was a troubleshooter. So they, you know she was she worked her way up from like a a, a server waitress back in the day to a, a district manager by the end. And we traveled. We just moved every year. But she would they would give, you know I don't know because she was a woman. They just they always told her to go into some store and beat the hell out of it. You know, fix it. Fix it. <laughs> Okay. And so we did. And so we would, we'd move. We moved every year. I went to 11 schools to get through 12 years of school. And um, I was just in the restaurant from the time I was 12 years old. I was in a restaurant. I was, she'd pay me 50 bucks on a Saturday to clean the oyster pit. Oh, little oyster experience. Okay. <laughs> it's this box about five foot by four foot rectangle box and below the oyster bar. And you have to get in it. And it's, it's up to my waist. It's sludge. And you clean it out. So she'd pay me 50 bucks. In 1973, that was a lot. And um, and then we throw my clothes away because they stunk. Oh my god! Because it was gross. Nobody would do it in the restaurant, so I would do it. But fifty bucks for a kid, yeah, nineteen seventy three. That's huge. Fifty bucks now. I'm paying some guy fifty bucks to clean my hoods today. So <laughs> you know. Anyway, so I was in the restaurant. and I just always worked, and so I didn't love nobody. Knew, there was nothing was happening in this in this business. Nothing. It was like you were going to be a chef at Denny's. You were going to be a chef at the at a hotel. You're going to be a chef at, at some Caribbean uh, country club or like like a, like a resort, or you're going to be at a country club. And so nobody knew any of this was happening. And, but I was in the business, and I got a psych degree because I thought I'm going to go to school, I'm going to go to college, and I'm going to get a degree, and, and then I'll be a professional. I'll be like a real professional. And then I realized I wasn't smart enough to be a scientist in psychology, and I didn't want to sit in the office all day long because that wasn't me. So I, I traveled through Europe as a backpacker, and that changed my life. And then when I got back, I applied for this job at this, at this restaurant that I had no idea what it was. It just said looking for cooks at this a uh, fine dining French restaurant. And it happened to be in Denver. I lived in Pueblo at the time, Colorado. Uh, the chef hired me on the spot. And I became, he became my mentor. He, he took care of me. I, I worked 
I did everything he did. I mimicked everything he did. If he was working on a carrot that he turned, you know, if he was working on an artichoke, I went and got one and I did it. And I did it and I did it and I did it and did it until I got good at it. And then he, he moved back to Europe and then he, I said, can I, I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to join you in a year. He said, okay. And I packed, I saved 10 grand and I packed up my first wife and daughter and we moved there. I had a lot of, I had balls back then. <laughs> So just pick <laughs> up, move, and then... Uh, I sold my stuff that I owned twice to move to Europe and work. Yeah. Both, both times in France, though. Yeah. Because so, he was in France. Had he been in Italy or something, I would have gone there. Had he been in Czechoslovakia, I'd have been there if he'd have been in... Okay. I didn't. I mean, you know, I just was trying to go somewhere to learn. And from there... Uh, and back you, in the day, the, you know, in the 1980s, you know, you had to... You know, I mean, some people went to Italy, and I don't know... How, you know, they were either there because they were working in some Long Island Italian restaurant and the guy knew some guy and he sent him over there. I mean, there's a reason you went. You didn't just go and show up. Somebody had to send. You kind of had to, you know. But if you wanted to be taken serious as a chef, you had to go to it, to France. I mean, now you can go anywhere in the world. You go to Italy. You go to Thailand. You go to Singapore. You go to Bangkok. You go to Hong Kong. You go to New York. You can go to L.A. You, you, back then it was go to France, learn how to be a chef. 80s and 90s, totally yeah. French. Yeah. Okay. So then you come back to the U.S. and you're... So I land in, in the U.S. and, I, and I, I just luck out and get a job at Charlie Trotter's. Nobody knew who he was. We thought it was a cafeteria practically. I mean, he said it was going to be a fine dining restaurant, but Charlie Trotter, who, like, what, that's name. We did, it was like Marie Callender. I mean, you know, we just didn't know what that meant. Such a big name right. now, but... Right. Yeah. Nobody knew who he was. We didn't even know what the hell we were doing. We were putting food. He hired a ton of great cooks. We were all really good. And uh, we were putting food on the menu like five minutes to six. Oh, we're changing the venison today. <laughs> okay. You know, there was a lot of pressure. He drank a lot of espresso. He made me look, <laughs> he made me look like I was in molasses, stuck in molasses. <laughs> and we know that you're pretty uh, high energy. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, and, and, and he let me, uh, I was his first sous chef. He had, he had a sous chef, Jeff Felsenthal, who was, was his best friend. He goes, I'll give you six months and then I'm out because I, I want to maintain our friendship. And so I worked there for two years, but he hired me knowing that I would be his next sous chef. So I was sort of... I wasn't training because I was working on the line and doing regular cook stuff, but I was there and I was ready to step in. So then I was a sous chef for about a year and a half and uh, it was good. You know, we were just starting to break out of this mold. You know, when, when I worked for him, it was all about California cooking. It was all Bradley Ogden and uh, Jeremiah Tower. Nothing. I'd come from France, but he didn't want anything to do with a, with a quenelle, turning anything. He didn't want anything to do with that. One of the first dishes I put on the menu was uh, a stuffed duck leg. I stuffed it with sweetbreads and black trumpet mushrooms and uh, served it with these artichoke and uh, red wine artichoke braised beans. And he tasted the dish and he's like, this is incredible, but I can't put this on the menu. I was like, why? He goes, it's a duck leg. Oh, I, can't, I can't do that. So I went and got home. I went home and got all my French cookbooks. I had I'd been collecting about 15 or 20 of them. I brought three or four of them that had an incredible stuffed duck leg type dish. It wasn't what I did. I may have copied somewhere, but I don't know. And I showed him, and he's like, all right, we'll put that on. And so what was his – I'm not because sure I understand. Because the duck breast is the – the breast is what you want to serve in a fine okay. restaurant, all not right. the leg. Not the leg the is uh, – yeah. And I did it because we kept you serving the breast, and we had about 500 legs in the freezer. <laughs> and I, I'm like, what do you – I mean, that's how I cook today. I don't waste anything. Another dish I put on the menu that was one of the first – it was the first dish that he served over $30. It was a, it was a fresh – um, spaghetti tossed with truffles and it was a lamb loin lamb heart and lamb tongue and he's like we'll never sell this and we sold it and when you're when you work for the chef when you're young like that and you work for a chef who lets you put food on the menu and it sells that gives you a lot of confidence that you know that you can make food that somebody will buy I tell my cooks all the time you need to know that you can make food someone will buy but that's not the only reason I mean I, I make food that I want to eat and if I think it's delicious and I want to eat it, I'm hoping my – I've always hoped that my customers would eat it too. And you've always been able to, particularly with extra virgin, get people to eat things that right. maybe we were a little bit nervous about. Right. And I invented none of that. But they trust me because I gave them mashed potatoes and mushroom sauce with halibut for five years. Then I gave them um, – you know, then I gave them maybe uh, veal, braised veal with a veal tripe sauce. And the sauce was not it, – it didn't scare them. They ate it and they loved it and they didn't know what it was. And I told them it was tripe and they're like, oh. And then it wasn't just me. But, you know, then TV changed everything. 
the Anthony Bourdain guys and, and Zimmern because they're traveling the world and they're eating all this cool stuff and our customers are watching them on TV and they're more adventurous than ever. I was just there to facilitate it happening for them in Kansas City. I can remember when I first started covering you as a reporter at the Star. Um, that would have been the mid-90s. I don't think we even had Food Network television no. available in Kansas City. Maybe 96 or 97. Because I remember doing, uh, I did five shows for uh, Ready, Set, Cook. Oh, wow. The grab bag kind of food. Forgot about they, that. Yeah. You, they give you a bag of food and, you know, somebody from the audience gave you a bag of five ingredients and you had to make two dishes or something. Do you like those kind of challenges? No, they're stupid. <laughs> what do you think about, uh, you know, the chef culture that has grown from food television? Well, I think it's a little bit, it's been a little bit detrimental to the cooks because they don't want to work hard. Nobody wants to work hard in the kitchen. And it takes, it takes 10 years. I mean, you know, the problem with, so the culture is that we've got a you can open a restaurant at any time, at any level, at any price point, and you can be successful. But it doesn't mean you, doesn't necessarily mean you know how to cook. And that's not – I'm not trying to be, you know, uppity about it. I'm just saying, you know, there's a level of – you know, and, and some of these young kids do learn it because they start so young. They, they do learn and they're young when they, have, when they know a lot. And that's okay. That's great. But a lot of them don't. And you have to really know the fundamentals. You just do. You're never going to get past that. They're going to fail somewhere down the line if you don't learn the fundamentals. It's as basic as building a house. It just is. Um, but these days it seems like you also have to have sort of a, a facility for interviews and media oh, yeah. Yeah. and uh, social media and all of that. And that was not even a thing when <laughs> – Right. When you landed here in Kansas City, so I remember going to the dining room at the American and just having to, you know, I, I cruised the dining room at, at at Gordon in Chicago, and um, the first time I, I the first time I went to the dining room to talk to a a very important guest uh, was at Charlie Trotter's. He went on vacation about about four months into my gig as a sous chef, and we had not gotten for we we were waiting for a review from the from the from the Tribune. And he went on vacation, went to Florida with his wife, Lisa, and uh, I was in charge. And the food critics came in. They came in twice. And I fed them. And they were tough. They were a husband and wife couple. I forget their names from back then, but they were tough. And we got four stars. But I went out and talked to them, and I was very nervous. And then I went to the, you know, at the American, I visited, uh, the dining room at Gordon was very raucous crowd. He was, he was a gay owner. And so it was just a loose, I mean, it was a tight operation, but loose atmosphere in a way. It was fun. The dining room was decorated cool. It was downtown, windows everywhere. And it was just that environment. So it was easy to walk around in. And I didn't, wasn't good at it, but I could walk around in there and, and talk to people. I asked Kathleen Turner if she enjoyed her dinner and she blew smoke in my face because you could smoke in the cigarettes back, you know, back in the day, you could smoke. <laughs> She was a big, yeah, uh, whatever. Anyway. Um, so you got comfortable kind of working. Yeah. But when I went to the American, then it's like, you know, hands behind your back and sort of bent over and I was dinner tonight. I mean, it was very, for, it was just harder. It was, for, it felt very heavy-ish. Mm -hmm. So I had to be very polite. Yeah. And I didn't know my customer. I didn't know how much money, you know, I just knew they had a lot of money and they were very important, but I didn't know who they were. I didn't, you know, whatever. And then at 40 Sardines, I learned how to be in that room and be more casual, more fun. And then at Michael Smith, it was back to kind of formalish. And then when EV opened up, everything changed for me because I could go in that room and I felt it. I wanted to create a space where if I was behind the kitchen and I saw somebody at the bar that I knew, I could point at them and like wave or what's going on or to talk to them, read lips a little, or something like that. And then I could be louder. And then as I walked through the hall, I would be like, and then be more formal when I entered the MS dining room. And then at some point after about five or six years, I, I would go through that dining room and I'd be like, what's going on? What are you doing here? Because I would just <laughs> yell at them or something or say, because I didn't, because I didn't care anymore. I could just, I would just, I was like, I don't care. Isn't I'm not that... trying to have a fine dining. Chill yeah. out. We're going to be noisy, Michael. That's great. Be noisy. Okay, great. Awesome. <laughs> are you sure? Yeah. Isn't that the change though that we've seen in dining in the last 20 a the 25 bit, yeah. years. Yeah. We've gone from fine dining, which was a little bit buttoned up and formal, and which fork do I use and which uh, wine glass, I'm so confused kind of thing, and yeah. to it just doesn't really matter um, yeah. because we're all coming in our jeans and we're feeling casual and we want to we yell to the chef across the room and say, hey, 
Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, there's still some rooms that don't, you know, that don't dictate that. I think, but but we're trying to. I mean, you know, there's still people that look at the MS side of the dining room and they feel a little bit intimidated because they're not dressed right or whatever, or you know, don't don't or can't afford it. Um, but at, at Farina, you know, we're we, we kind of did away with a couple of things. The, the, the carpets, we have some rugs, but we did away with the, you know, we have wood floors, we did away with the tablecloth, and we're hoping that it just takes it down a notch or two that the customer feels, you know, elegant, there's some elegant dining option, and yet it's, you know, enough that you can have some fun and whatever, let loose or be a little more casual. Or... But you had some fun people in in Michael Smith's. Oh, yeah. Um, and when It's I'm... been great over the year cultivating this and that's what Nancy's more sentimental than me about, really, because the dining room, she's cultivated this dining room and the wine list, and she can she, people what they want to drink. And you know where they want to sit and all this, and it's fun. The kitchens are all, you know, my kitchen's old over there. I took over a seven-year-old kitchen from, you know, whatever. And so I'm a little more antsy about moving into a nice, organized space, and she's sentimental about giving up that space that she's created. And with that room, we, we, we cultivated some really cool people and customers and so Nancy, your wife, um, was running Instagram uh, this week, and I saw some of the things that she was remembering, um, some of the famous people that came by. So, Did she um, post? I saw that, and I wasn't sure who posted that. <laughs> Mick Jagger. Yeah. Let's talk about Mick Jagger. How did he end up in the restaurant? I don't know. His people, you know, we get a lot of calls. We really don't get that many famous, famous people, but there's been a few. Um we get calls a lot that say we're gonna we need a uh, what, what what do they call a vet we want to vet the restaurant okay come by we'll be you know and they'll look around and, blah, 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 and then we may never hear from them they never tell you who it is they just go we have, a, we have somebody in we need to vet the place and they'll say you need a blah 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 you can't be here you can't be there you can't sit over here uh, close the bathrooms whatever. is this so, like security yeah 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 okay they're, they're they're guys they're fixer guys so two guys came in and Nancy walked them through everything and he said okay well, it's between they told us it was between us and I don't know. Uh, American maybe or Blue Stem, anyway. But they didn't say who it was, and but we knew the Rolling Stones were in town, so we thought maybe it's them. And um, they were, they were, they were, it was fine. It, but but they they made us close the restrooms, and that's part of the you know it's part of the dining room. I mean, there's no other access, so they said, look, close them or we're leaving. And I said, okay, well, I close them, so we closed them. But he was cool. He was fine. He was very quiet. He was with his um, he was only with one other bandmate, uh, a guy that you know we went to the show the next night and we saw him. He was playing that. Um, What's that round, uh, small, you know, horn instrument? The horn, French horn. He was playing the French horn. French horn? Yeah. Wow. Um, that guy joined him. So he wasn't one of the original guys. Um, he had his... Not um, a huge rock and roll instrument. <laughs> right. Um, uh, but they use a lot of horns in their music. Yeah. Um, but uh, he was with his uh, a publicist, his, his uh, dresser, you know, his, his stylist, um, Another guy that did all of his um, – he was with like two two design people. It was five of them. And they all ordered regular food and he ordered the dumbest thing. Whatever. I mean he ordered some whatever. Not not exciting? Is that what you're no, trying to say? No, he ordered these two dishes. He combined this pasta and this – we had this dish at the time. And I'd done it at the American a bunch of times. And it was just a fun dish to do in the summertime. But it was – I think it was fall. But it was sheets of – we have this sheeter that we – it's a Japanese tool that we make sheets of potato – and we fry them flattish. They're kind of curled, but they're—I mean—they're kind of wavy, but they're—they're they're flat. And we stack it up with vegetables, and then we put medallion of fish in between. So we do in char. So we did char, a bunch of vegetables. It's like a Napoleon, and it was—it was a great, it's a great dish. The vinaigrette—it was light and fresh and nice. He wanted that. We had this mafaldi dish on with with bell peppers and tomatoes and basil and herbs and garlic. And he wanted those two together. And it whatever. Did, did it hurt? Yeah. <laughs> I did my best, but it was a dumb dish, and he liked it. And he said he ate it. It was great, but whatever. Well, there you go. But the people around him said it was great. We loved everything, and they were cool. And we sent him down to. We were trying to get him down to. They were going to take him down to, uh, what's the, um, speakeasy down the street, and uh, um, with Ryan maybe manifesto. Yes, manifesto. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Trying to do that. They were the guys actually. Had some girls on the patio. They were they were hanging out with, and those guys let. I don't. It was weird, but they were they. You know, we talked to them. We took a picture. It was real. It was. He was cool. Lots of fun. You also had um, Ferran Adria. That was fun. Who was um, 
considered, what, one of the greatest chefs in the world at this point in time. Yeah. And he was visiting for an exhibit at mm-hmm. the Nelson. His own exhibit. <laughs> right, his own exhibit <laughs> about food. And uh, did you get to hang out with him? I no. know you dined at his place. Yeah, we hung before. out a little bit at Boulevard the night before and uh, sat at his table. He, he doesn't speak English, so. Or he didn't speak English to me. <laughs> no, that's true. I, I, I think did he an does. interview with him and I had to go through an interpreter. It's, yeah. It makes it a little tough. So also going way back, I remember you hanging out, and this was a picture also that Nancy ran with uh, Julia Child. Yeah. And I cool. remember th- that so clearly. She was just such a uh, spitfire. Do you remember something about someone asking if they could use um, something besides butter? Oh, yeah, when she was up in the, in the, up in the audience at that, uh, uh, yeah. And she said, why? I mean, she said exactly what she's been saying for 30, you know, 40, 50 years or whatever. Yeah. Why would you not use butter? Right. Everything in moderation. Uh, and it's true. I have to say the photograph that was taken, and I don't know if it was a star photograph or another. I don't know who sent that, that one. to me. I love that photograph yeah. of you. You're just having, you're really engaged with her. It's a black and white because photo. She, um, somebody sent that to me. I have no idea to this day. But I used to have a small, I used to keep it really small up above on this little ledge at, at MS. But people would steal. Like I had another couple of photos at 40 Sardines down the hallway of the restrooms, and people stole them. So we <laughs> kept that one. But one of my servers uh, made that one a little bit larger for us and framed it and gave it to me long time, I mean, eight years ago or something. Anyway, um, so I was standing backstage ready to introduce her. I don't know who introduced her on stage that day, but I was standing backstage waiting with her. And she was 80-whatever, 80 87 or something, right? And I could hear, like, I could hear all of the plumbing. I mean, it was just funny. It was like she was hollow, you know, because it was dark back there and it was it was empty. It was Are you just saying backstage. she gurgled? A little bit. <laughs> I just hear she'd swallow and I'd hear it coming. Down. I mean, it was just weird. I was just I just noticed. I just I don't know why I remember that, but it was just so quiet. I could hear her breathing because she's you know she was old, so she was breathing harder. Anyway, then we walked up to the thing, and I told her the night before. I said. I said, uh, I knelt down to her table, and she's like, we, this is an incredible meal. I feel like you just cooked for our table. It was a good meal. We did a good job, I thought. It was 100 people. Anyway, I said, well, I'll be assisting you tomorrow. I got everything ready for you. She, they told me to pick out three recipes. I ran it by her, Stephanie, her assistant, and I approved everything. And I, she goes, oh, I'm, not, I'm not doing this. You're cooking. I'm going to be sitting on stage with a glass of wine. Well, and she that's was pretty much the stage of yeah. life that she was at. Yeah. And you that was a really great yeah. um, moment for you, wasn't it? Well, I'd never done. So I'd done in Chicago. I'd done like uh, um, Marshall Fields at the time. I did demos there. But, you know, you're in a little thing, a kiosk, and maybe there's 20 people who stop by. But, you know, there's people. But, you know, I'd never done a formal kind of cooking class. And so she said, you're going to. And so there's there was I don't know, there was 300 people there. Yeah, it was a big, big group. Yeah, and I think that's I was the first time I saw you do a cooking class. And I think one thing that, um, you know, before we go, I think I was talking to Nancy uh, not long ago, and uh, you know, I said, "What is it about Michael that you think is his biggest contribution? Not only as the first James Beard Award-winning chef in Kansas City, but what do you think he's most contributed?" And she said, "He really mentors a lot." Do you agree with that? Yeah, I teach kids every day. I don't. I tell my yeah. customers we don't have a. We're not a restaurant. We're a cooking school. You know, we cook. I got so many kids. You got to starting over all the time. I got two. You know, God dang, it's hard. But you know, that's. And I treat them like crap sometimes. I mean, I treat them good. But I see. I tell them flat out, dude, you need to learn this because you will not succeed if you do not learn this. This is basic. Yeah. So honesty. Yeah, I tell them all the time. You're gonna. You know. You. I tell them. You know, all these kitchens you see on TV, I, I hope, I, I really hope you get to work in those kitchens. But if you don't, you better know how to do this. Mm-hmm. Because this is, this place, it, hard to work in, but you got to make it happen. Some guy's going to give you a chef job and then they go, this is my kitchen. Can you do it or not? Because I'm not, I'm not remodeling. And you go, yes, sir, I can do it. Because <laughs> you want a chef job. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the restaurant, Farina, is opening on? February 5th. February 5, and you're ready to roll? Your staff's ready to roll? We've got a staff, and we are, if we don't jack up the food, we'll be fine. I I find this really endearing about you, but why would you even say that? You've been so successful for so many years. Because I've I've never taken it for granted, and I'm having nightmares now about whether you make the right menu choices, whether you can execute it, um, timing. (laughs) 
If the food's late, they don't care how good it is sometimes. I mean, some cities they do. They're willing to wait. They don't wait in Kansas City. They're pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> We're impatient folk. Huh? Yes. I just never take it for granted, and I'm trying to think of every... Like when I opened 40 Sardines, I thought, when the critics hate it, they'll say, 40 Sardines, more like 20. <laughs> so then, you know, they'll go, Farina, Burnt Flower, or uh, what's the headline? I always think of the headlines, like the bad headlines. Wow. And so that, is that helpful to you? Is that what makes you successful and drives a, you forward? Yes, I'm afraid of failure. I cannot fail. I don't, I will, I can never fail. I can't. Well, I I highly doubt that will happen, but Michael Smith, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us, and if only everyone could see the fabulous hands. I I love the way you talk (laughs) with your hands. I'm trying to hide them. Don't do it. It it will only, you know, mess up. It's like the smile on radio, right? The only reason I'm not using them more today is I have to lean on this table, so I have to be careful. It's been great talking to you. I really do appreciate it. I enjoyed it. We'll stop by soon. Thank you. I'll bring Lindsay along with me. All right. All right. Take care.